Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. I'm Bahraini, but it always feels like coming home when I come to the Gulf. And 
um, I'm excited specifically to speak to this audience um, because so much of my uh, public lectures have been in North America, Western Europe, where you have a lot of work to do uh, around just um, managing the stereotypes about the Gulf or providing some basic information about how migration citizenship operates in this context. And so um, this is a, an audience in which I feel I have a lot to learn from you and this is, um, I'm presenting really preliminary work for a new project so it can it drastically change. I would really love um, any and all feedback and so I'm going to, uh, yeah, I just wanna say looking forward to learning from you, please. Uh, even if we don't get a chance in the Q&A, email me, uh, reach out if there's anything that resonates. Um, to give you a sense of what I'm gonna do today, I'm gonna first, very briefly, uh, just try to set up what the larger research agenda I'm trying to pursue is, and then spend just a couple of slides on pr the previous work, which I'm happy to expand upon um, in the Q&A if necessary. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about this new book called Passport Power, which is in progress, and then, um, uh, some of the empirics from one of the chapters, which is on mobility diplomacy and lobbying around uh, visa waivers. And then, um, yeah, end with some preliminary results and, and next steps. So uh, usually I'll end with, these are the implications of the findings and um, this time I'm not, I'm going to end with, here's some of the really early things I'm finding and some of the things that are kind of surprising. Um, again, with hopes of opening it up to, to you all. Um, okay, so research agenda. Um, at its broadest, uh, at the heart of, of my research agenda is a desire to understand how time is used to both construct and police national boundaries. So when we think about borders, we often think of space. We think these are where the territorial borders are. You might have remote border controls. An example of that is a consulate where you're getting a visa before you meet the territory of the state. So that's an example of how the regulatory power of the, the, the state extends beyond the territory. That's remote control. You might also have interior border controls. Uh, this is a context in which you have very high, uh, robust um, uh, apparatus for interior border controls. And by that, I simply mean anytime your legal status gets checked within the interior of a territory. So a landlord, rental car company, uh, hotels, anytime they check your ID, that's a, that's a border control by interior. So we, we understand there's each one of these and then of course at the border itself your IDs get checked. So there's a really robust literatures on border enforcement across these spaces. And what I'm trying to, to think about is also how in addition to the you know strategic use of space, uh, states also strategically use time to both construct and police national boundaries. And by that, we have to look at, this is gonna sound very abstract, but it'll be very clear for, uh, to you once uh, um, we look at some of the examples, but uh, it, it looking at how, um, I'm trying to look at how states deploy time and it's miscounting to uh, gain discretionary power over who is a citizen, who is a not. Um, so uh, by, um, we have to pay attention to legal maneuvers that effectively separate out the chronological advancement of the clock, so clock time, time as duration, from the way that time gets counted under the mantle of the law. So by creating different legal statuses and counting the time of different statuses differently, states can strategically slow down, suspend, or conversely speed up 
the inclusion of particular non-citizen residents. And so um, temporary statuses, uh, uh, to, for example, temporary work authorization is an example of how states miscount the time of individuals or counted as temporary, even if they're there for longer periods of time. The, the, the book I'm currently working on that I'll be talking about is on the converse side. Um, citizenship by investment schemes in which, which are programs that are strategically designed to decrease the residency time that is required before you get access to citizenship or in some cases eliminate it entirely. Um, so uh, you, um, when we look at temporary legal statuses, these are typically uh, seen when it comes to labor migrants or humanitarian migrants, so quote unquote undesirable. And when it, we look at some of the statuses that create expedited pathways towards citizenship, that those are the desirable migrants, typically um, exceptionally talented or high net worth individuals. Um, and I think the, the point about this and thinking about, you know, not just time but also spaces, often we think about migration enforcement as restriction. And it's not about restriction, it's filtration. And increasingly, how do you become more and more sophisticated in increasing that discretionary power? So restriction is a part of it, but acceleration is a really big part of it too. And that's what I'm going to try to be unpacking today. So the previous work has really uh, looked at modes of slowing down time. Um, so counting people as temporary um, or miscounting their time in different ways. So one of the, 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 the first book I have, um, Offshore Citizens Permanent Temporary Status in the Gulf, looks at uh, three different ways that we see, uh, three different legal strategies for miscounting time or slowing down time. So one of them is the use of countdown deadlines. Um, this is a language that comes from Elizabeth Cohen's book, Political Value of Time. And in that book, she's actually looking at liberal states, liberal tradition, but it, it, it's, a, it's a useful concept for thinking about modern states more generally, which are often based on the idea of a national founding, um, which freezes, codifies and freezes the population at a particular point in time, after which everyone else is considered alien or foreign and, and either has to you know, naturalize to become part of the body politic. And, um, and you see this across all states. There's always a moment of national founding. What's interesting in the Gulf cases is you have um, countdown deadlines that precede the formation of the state, uh, sometimes significantly, almost at 50 years. So in the case of the UAE, it's 1925. That's a more important um, uh, moment in time. And, and uh, instead of the passport, the more important document is the Khalafat al-Qaid, the family book, that traces your lineage to these founding families. So that's the UAE. Kuwait, it's 1936. Qatar, it's 1940. Um, in all of those cases, the countdown deadline precedes the, the, the formation of the state, and sometimes that's chosen strategically. So the um, British records are kind of telling, and so in um, a quote from the British records of 1969, the British uh, residency resident in Dubai was saying, um, uh, no one coming to, the, cho the choice of 1925 was because, quote, no one coming to settle here before then could be said to have come in to quote unquote cash in on the oil income. And so it's not surprising that in these um, very robust uh, economies with, with ha that have robust social services that are oil based, you're going to try to create, uh, make the group of beneficiaries smaller and also uh, decide, you know, create a deadline that chooses who's a citizen prior to the discovery of this resource. Um, and, uh, but again, we see countdown deadlines 
uh, outside of the Gulf also. It's a really important way of thinking about how national boundaries are initially constructed. Um, another is naturalization delays. So this can be done uh, when individuals have met the thresholds on paper for being naturalized, but then their cases are constantly um, left pending for long periods of time in security processing, or uh, you're still assessing some of the more qualitative aspects of, of naturalization, like good behavior, allegiance. Um, and again, this is a strategy, I think you'll get a sense here that a lot of what I try to do in my work is de exceptionalize the Gulf and think about, okay, if we see something here, do we see it elsewhere? Um, and so I have a piece on naturalization delays in the United States under a program called the CARP, Controlled Application Review and Resolution Program. So the American Council for, um, uh, no, ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union actually has a massive class action lawsuit against the US government for this program. And what it does is it basically puts your name on a list, primarily targeting Muslim permanent residents who've met the threshold for permanent, uh, to, to receive, they're already permanent residents, they've met the temporal threshold for getting citizenship, but instead their cases are not adjudicated. They're not denied, because if they're denied, you can uh, appeal, and there's no basis for denial. So instead of denying, it's just left pending. In some cases, there's a case of an Iraqi couple, they've been waiting 20 years. So that's an example of a state that on paper is very inclusive, that there's a clear pathway from, you know, permanent residency towards citizenship, but then naturalization delays can be very strategic in, in giving the state discretionary power over who to allow uh, to become a member of the body politic and who not. Um, another example is temporary statuses. So this is um, really what we see across the Gulf of, of uh, counting people being on illegal statuses that get renewed, say two year, three year, or now we have examples of 10 year visas. But the point is, you might be constantly renewing these visas. It doesn't mean that you're temporarily in the country. It means that you're on a temporary status and your time doesn't count towards a pathway towards citizenship. Um, and so it can lead to a, a kind of case of permanent deportability. And so again, if we look in the Gulf cases, um, you know, this is what's often referred to as a demographic imbalance across all the GCC and four out of the six GCC states, uh, non-citizens outnumber citizens and um, in places like the UAE and Qatar, it's you know, almost 90%. And so it's not accurate to say, well, all of this 90% is uh, permanent. No, there are people who come in and out for very short periods of time, but there are also people who built their lives here on these temporary visas who might be in the second generation or third generation and find ways of navigating these temporary visas in order to, to reside permanently. Um, so those are kind of the three ways um, that we see time being used uh, very strategically to, to control national boundaries. Um, one of the things that I've been trying to do is, you know, when we look at slowing down time, what does this do to citizenship statuses? And so one of the main arguments of the first book is to say, in the same way that we have territorial boundary zones, where the, it's not clear where the line is and you have competing jurisdiction, um, we should be thinking about demographic boundary zones. So not simply you have citizenship or you don't, you might be inhabiting ad hoc limbo statuses for a lifetime or over a generation. So it becomes a kind of citizenship status of, of precarity or you know, precarious citizenship. So um, you end up with uh, 
uh, there, I have a chapter in the Oxford Handbook on Citizenship that tries to map this out, again, putting the Gulf in a comparative context and drawing upon secondary literature from other world regions to show how you find these categories everywhere. Um, and in some cases, some of these limbo categories are very informal. So, you know, you're stateless, you don't have ID and you don't have authorization to reside. You might have an ID, but not the authorization. So irregular. Um, I never use illegal immigrants because uh, human beings cannot be illegal, only actions can be illegal, but in, in the, you know, th that's in common parlance, you'll, you'll hear that. Um, and then you have more codified forms of these conditional and partial inclusion, and that includes temporary work authorization, which we've just talked about um, in the Gulf cases, but elsewhere, um, and then temporary protected status. So more, less than 1% of people who are forcibly displaced actually meet the criteria for, uh, the for being a refugee or get access to um, asylum. And so for the vast majority of forcibly displaced populations, they're on these kinds of ad hoc temporary protected statuses. Um, again, it's important for me, and, and when I first started doing this work, I think I was, I, I expected the Gulf to be this real deviation from global trends, and instead, I think it's important to think of it as an extreme articulation of what you see elsewhere, as opposed to um, a, a deviation from global trends. So this is a, a figure from a book called Crossroads by Anna Boucher and Justin Guest. And um, one of the things they do is, in this uh, figure, they're showing the, the number of admissions by, by different states of temporary statuses. And so once you start looking at, well, what, does, what do these visa categories actually give you, you realize that it's, it's definitely not just in the Gulf where we have these temporary um, labor statuses. In fact, this is an increasingly uh, growing global trend. And just to give you a sense of how this operates, I don't know if this, um, for example, if you look at the United States, uh, which is often kind of considered in, as the opposite side of the spectrum of the Gulf, very kind of inclusive. You come in, after five years, you get a green card. After an additional five years, you get citizenship or three years, depending on you know, whether you're married or not. In reality, 60% of US visa categories are non-immigrant. Um, that means your time does not count. You might be in the United States for 20 years under a non-immigrant visa. You can be deported the next day. None of that time counts towards the residency requirement for um, meeting the criteria of a green card or citizenship. But when it comes to taxation, time is time. After 180 days, we'll count to the day. Five years, 180 days of uh, residency within the territory of the United States, you're gonna be taxed like a US citizen. So that's why it's important to look at these as um, legal maneuvers or strategies. Um, so, okay, that's a little bit on the first project, which is, again, slowing down time. And now the, the book I'm currently working on is about acceleration and speeding up time. Um, and so the, the book is tentatively entitled Passport Power, Mobility, Diplomacy, and Citizenship Markets. Um, and uh, by mobility diplomacy, I'm really interested in looking at visa waivers and negotiations around visa waivers that decrease the time you need to spend before you're authorized to travel. 
um, and I'm also interested in, in exploring this um, really interesting uh, industry, the citizenship by investment and residency by investment industries. And so um, I, I, I assume in this context there are people who've heard about this and a lot of context people don't know. So I'll just say um, the first program starts in 1984 in St. Kitts and Nevis. Um, after the, uh, the crash of their sugar industry. And today, 20% of all countries across the globe uh, have legal provisions that allow high net worth individuals to attain citizenship on an expedited manner. Um, in some cases, you don't need to reside there at all. In other cases, the higher the premium, we might decrease your residency time as required. So again, there's an interesting way in which um, time and money get exchanged here and you can exchange money for, for uh, decreasing time. So um, to give you a little bit, uh, m m to talk about you know, passport power and, and what I'm trying to do in this book, I'll start with um, saying that I, the, some of the results you're gonna see I tried to publish, and one of the reviewers was saying, who cares about visas? Um, and I was thinking this is someone who has a strong passport because it's a kind of privilege that if you don't, uh, if you have a strong passport, you never have to think about. It's, it's just, you can just book and go. Um, and if you don't, you have to spend uh, sometimes months, um, uh, sometimes more, saving, providing information about this is how much income I have, here's my bank account, here's my employer, here are the time ties I have to my country of origin, um, a, a kind of individualized vetting. And so the, there's a really large hierarchy um, when it comes to who has access to pre-authorized movement, i.e. who can just travel versus who needs to go through this individualized vetting. So what you're seeing here comes from Arten Capital's Passport Index. Um, and this is the, the index that ranked the UAE passport as number one in 2018. I use two different indices. There's this one, and then I'll show you figures from a different one, which is the Henley and Partners um, index. And the reason I use Henley and Partners um, for, for the statistical analysis is because they gave me access to their data and they have a longer time series. So I can look at it from 2006 to now. Um, uh, they code. The, the, the way that they do the coding can be a little bit different. In Arden uh, Capital Index, for example, the number one uh, passport is the UAE. Um, in Henley, the number one passport is Singapore, and the UAE is ranked as 13. That's, I can get into why that is, but that's why I don't really depend on rankings. I think it's better to look at the mobility score. So what you're seeing here is a mobility score, and it's um, the way that this gets coded is for bilateral agreements between states. Um, and if you don't need a visa, then you get a score of one. If you need a visa, it's zero. So what you're seeing here in the comparison, I hope you can see it, Ukraine versus Afghanistan, is that today, uh, with a Ukrainian passport, you can go to 146 countries without a visa, um, out of 199. Um, in, uh, on, by contra uh, contrast, Afghanistan, you can only go to 39. And when you look at where those uh, uh, countries are located, none of them are in the immediate vicinity receiving area. They're all in Sub-Saharan Africa or Oceania. So it shows that the likelihood of becoming quote unquote illegal is highly unevenly distributed across the globe. For some people, the only way out is to use traffickers and um, irregular entry because especially in a time of crisis, the consulates close down. How are you supposed to apply for a visa and leave? Uh, 
But this doesn't tell us who has authorized permanent residency or access to citizenship, but it does tell us who, in a moment of crisis, can get up and go and where they can go. Um, there's two pieces I wanted to cite. One was uh, um, Stefan Mao et al. have a wonderful piece called, called The Global Mobility uh, Divide, and what they show is that they do a quantitative analysis of changes in visa waiver policies based on 150 countries from 1969 and to 2010. Um, and they find that while on average visa-free mobility has increased over the, 40, uh, the past 40 decades, uh, visa waivers are increasingly unequally divided. Um, so while citizens of uh, OECD, highly developed countries, um, and rich countries have gained mobility rights, mobility rights for other regions have stagnated or even diminished, in particular for citizens from African countries. Um, overall, they find a clear bifurcation mobility uh, rights, so they come up with this concept of the global mo mobility divide. Um, and this relates to a lot of literature that shows how mobility and, mo and immobility are increasingly interlinked, and the, the speed and access to travel for a certain segment of the globe is also built on the criminalization of travel for another segment of the globe. Another recent piece, Retchi and all from 2021, have an interesting piece, and, and they look at um, the costs of visas. So what they show is that um, not only is there a hierarchy in who needs to have a visa, but when you, um, the cost of visas vary also significantly. So whereas Europeans usually hardly have to work at all for travel, so they look at um, uh, time as a proportion of income. So um, I'll, it'll, it'll be a little bit clearer, but they basically make the argument that whereas Europeans usually ha hardly have to work at all for travel permits, visa costs amount to several uh, weeks of mean income in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Um, the result is fundamental, a fundamentally paradoxical situation. The richer a country, the less its citizens pay uh, in visas to go abroad, both in absolute terms and relative to their income. Um, and the point is, again, there is this baseline hierarchy that, that has uh, profound um, implications. Uh, another kind of response to why should we care about passport power or, or rankings is one of the fundamental contradictions of the international human rights framework is that we have a framework, IANI, I'll explain what the IANI is, um, for safe refuge, um, problematic as it is, but we don't actually have a framework for safe passage. So safe passage is a citizenship-based right, which means that it's based on your passport and what negotiation the sovereign authority that has issued your passport has with the sovereign authorities that controls that territory. And so even the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is already not binding, doesn't postulate the right to cross borders of other states. It only postulates the right to enter exit from your own country. So this is really a core uh, facet of state sovereignty, and we see this across the political spectrum. As, uh, in some ways, the discretion, for me, the discretionary power um, over who enters or exits is as core to state sovereignty as security. Um, this is including in liberal states where you might have um, sort of the courts intervening, et cetera. Uh, you, we, we've seen this notion of plenary power, this idea of the sovereign having greater jurisdiction when it comes to questions of migration, citizenship, as well as security um, in ways that the courts uh, actually forfeit their power. I, I can give a more concrete example when we get to this point of 
So safe refuge, what do we have? We have the International Convention, Refugee Convention, 1951. We have the 1967 protocol, which builds on it. Um, and the problem with that framework is that under these conventions, the definition of a refugee is really narrow. So you have to show individualized persecution. Um, you can't get refugee status just by fleeing conflict. Um, you have to show, and it comes out of World War II and a response to the Holocaust and this idea of how do you protect individuals who've been persecuted by their state because of their identity. Empirically, what does that mean? Um, I'll give an example from a friend who um, was helping with some legal cases of Syrians uh, trying to get uh, asylum in the United States. And the woman she was speaking with was a Christian uh, Syrian, and she was saying, the lawyer was asking, you know, why did you leave? And she said, because my, heart, my house was bombed. Um, and the lawyer said, your house was bombed because you're Christian. And uh, she said, no, actually, my neighbor's house was bombed too. It's Muslim. We're going to leave that out of the application because we need to show that the, the only way we can get you the status is to show you've been targeted. So, of course, the vast majority of people who are fleeing um, for conflict purposes or climate change or any number of reasons are not necessarily individually persecuted. So that's why the system itself is, is very problematic and limited and it's definitely not going to you know, manage the crises that we're going to see with forced displacement, with uh, climate change um, happening. But at least there's an idea of, there's a framework for safe refuge. Um, and the point is some of the states that have the most robust refugee and asylum laws and allow for a safe refuge don't necessarily permit safe passage on the way there. So the only way that you can get safe refuge is by touching ground and claiming asylum. Um, there's an interesting case from 1994 that was a uh, U.S. Supreme Court case, Haitian uh, interdiction, migrant interdiction versus fail case. I, I don't have the exact name of the, the court case, but I can pull it up if, if needed. Anyway, this is an interesting case because in this um, court case, the Supreme Court effectively said our jurisdiction does not move, uh, like doesn't go past the territorial boundaries of the state. So if you interdict migrants before they touch ground, which the EU does, which the United States does, then they don't actually have the right to claim asylum. Um, and so, again, this is where we look at the plenary power doctrine and, and kind of this idea of sovereign discretion. But there is this real sort of manipulation of space, if you have it, to try to push people out. So there's these promises of safe refuge. And then actually the main issue is that even uh, getting safe refuge, how do you get it without safe passage? Um, so, the, so the book's kind of driving questions are, um, you know, how do, again, thinking about these citizenship by investment firms, how do they capitalize on these differentials between different passports? Um, what are the ways in which they market citizenship? How do they advise clients? Um, for individuals, how do families make decisions about what makes one passport more powerful than another? Um, and, you know, and then how do states attempt to maximize the power of their passport. So I'll be kind of talking about that third one, but the book is trying to get at passport power at these different levels and not just think of it as purely, you know, how many visa, um, uh, how many countries you can go to without a visa. So the mobility score is one way of measuring passport power, but I think that there, it's a, it's a much richer field of, of thinking about what makes one passport uh, more powerful than another. Um, some of the uh, data sources, I've been interviewing families, firms, 
diplomats. Um, one of the things I've been trying to do this summer was find brick and mortar locations of these citizenship by investment firms and, and just see, uh, take ethnographic um, observations on how, what they look like. What does it look like when you're selling citizenship? What's the waiting room like? How do you get treated? How is this different from, uh, for example, being in a waiting room to get a visa uh, from a consulate? Um, I'm going to show some of the statistical analysis, which mostly descriptive stats um, from the Henley and Partners uh, uh, data source. And then what I'm doing, and this is really coming in phase two, is I've been collecting treaties, debates, uh, reports, news, and advertisements, um, and building a really large archive, and then working um, with some scholars who are computer scientists to try to do, use some machine learning methods. Very skeptically, I'm very much a qualitative researcher, um, but I want to push myself to see if, if I can find interesting um, patterns in the data. So, um, you know, how do you increase your passport power? If you're in an individual, you might be thinking about investing, um, using some of these citizenship by investment schemes to get a better passport. But as a state, what does it take to increase your passport power? Um, and here, this is, in some ways, the, the explaining drops, declines, in passports is easier because political instability, for example, you see that other states remove their visa waivers. Um, economic crises, you might de decline also. But we know, and I have some quantitative analysis of this that I'm not gonna show today, but um, uh, income is not a good predictor of passport power. Some of the most, uh, the richest countries in the world, if you're looking at gross national income, also have pretty low passport rankings. China, um, Qatar has a much lower passport ranking than the UAE, for example. Um, in other cases, you might have, um, if you look at the, the, the relationship between something like freight, uh, state fragility, so instability, there's something called the uh, FCI, FSI, uh, state fragility index, and you regret, look at how that predicts passport power, you can tell there's a little bit of a correlation, but it's definitely not a sufficient, you have to be at least a stable state to get these visa waivers. It's not necessarily that stability will automatically make you move up. Um, and so when it comes to thinking about this question, I, um, I already mentioned that Henley and Partners gave me their data um, of these passport rankings or, and, and mobility scores for all countries of the world from 2006 to, to today. Um, and so what I started to do is look at the rate of change. So what you're seeing here is that most states see a shift of, you know, about 50 other countries might change their policies towards that particular um, country. The UAE changed the policies of over 144 countries um, between 2006 to 2023. And if you think of this data set as having 199, that's three quarters of the globe changed their policies towards the UAE in a very concentrated amount of time. So I'm not talking about the Emirati passport because I'm in the UAE. I'd be talking about the Emirati passport if I was anywhere else in the world. It is the most exceptional case. And it's really fascinating um, to see how that was possible because how do you change the perceptions? These are perceptions of who is safe enough to travel, who is a desirable travel traveler, and they've changed the perceptions of three quarters of the globe, right? Um, if anyone, you know, so one of the things I did was seeing, again, I didn't choose the UAE case until I looked at the data, and then it became clear this was a really interesting case. The other interesting case, which I'm not gonna talk about today is, oh, sorry, 
um, this one right here is Taiwan. So Taiwan also experienced a really large shift, um, but I'm, I'm not going to be talking about that one, but, and the UAE is still in a league of its own. Um, in, uh, so the first thing I did was actually sequence how did this shift uh, unfold over time. And one of the things that you see is that between, that there's an exponential rise between 2014 and 2016 and, and 2015 actually, and that's when the UAE signed the Schengen visa waiver. So um, I think in this context probably, I don't need to explain what Schengen is, but just in case, Schengen is the EU's um, uh, visa, it's common visa policy. It started off as its own treaty and then kind of has been uploaded to the EU and not all EU member states are part of Schengen. But for many of us who used to have to apply to you know, individual European states, now being able to apply to one and be, have free movement to all means that we would expect if you unlock access to Schengen, a 26-point bump because that's how many countries are in Schengen, right, or accept Schengen. But instead, we don't see a 26-point bump. We see a much, much higher exponential increase. By 2018, uh, excuse me, it becomes number one in the globe in the Arten Index. Um, and again, this is the Henley uh, Partners Index. So, sorry, I actually totally left my notes. Uh, yeah, so in 2006, you can see that uh, the UAE was very similar to the average Middle East and North Africa score. At that stage, only 35 countries in the world uh, allowed Emiratis to enter without a passport. Um, today, this is now 180 countries across the, the globe who allow Emiratis to enter without a passport. Um, and it became clear in looking at this as the main hypothesis was, well, okay, to unlock the globe, you have to unlock Europe. There has to, the Schengen has a kind of power here. So if that were the case in the UAE, um, if, that, if this were a more general trend, then we'd expect it to see in other cases that have unlocked Schengen, not just the UAE case, and that's exactly um, what we were able to find. So oh, I, this was the MENA average. I just, because we're in the Middle East, I wanted to show a little bit of a disaggregate. So you can see that some, you know, for example, Israel's been at the top from, from the beginning, Palestine, has been at the bottom from the beginning. Um, the Gulf cases were more aligned, um, and then the UAE actually really eclipses all of the uh, other Gulf cases. And I'm happy to, people are interested in this data, share this. Um, but the main, you know, starting to do this was thinking about how states uh, lobby and accumulate greater mobility capital, um, and thinking of, um, the European Union's role as a mobility broker. And so what I did, because I had you know, the full data set, I took the uh, tw top 25%, the countries that have m changed the most over the past, um, you know, over a decade since 2006. And for each country that's changed the most, this was supposed to be a GIF, but I'm not that sophisticated yet. So um, it eventually, maybe next time it'll actually move, but that's all 50 countries, you have this amazing exponential increase the, as soon as you unlock Schengen. Um, and so for me, that was sort of showing how, what's interesting about thinking about these visa waivers is that in many ways, it's a promise of non-immigration. 
um, in order to convince other states to allow your citizens to uh, enter, be authorized for pre-authorized entry, then you have to show that they're not going to be economic migrants, they're not going to become humanitarian migrants, they're not going to overstay, they're going to be good tourists, good business people, spend money and leave. Um, so how do you uh, create that perception? Um, and, and you can see that there are key, some key gate holders. I'm not saying the EU is the only one, but it, this is a clear finding for me to show that um, in some ways the EU's blacklist or whitelist has the power of diffusion and other states follow suit when they see EU uh, changing. Um, so one of the things I'm trying to do this year, I'm on leave, um, is actually go through the EU records in Florence and try to understand, well, how is the whitelist and the blacklist constructed to begin with, um, if we're going to understand shifts across them, how in the beginning were these constructed, why, for example, was Israel always on the whitelist, uh, Palestine always on the blacklist, maybe there's other <laughs> reasons to, to think about, but um, when it comes to the Middle East in particular and, and kind of globally understanding how that was constructed. Um, okay. So one of the things you see, so I'll say at this point, um, this can, what this shows me is that Schengen was a really key aspect, but it doesn't tell me what happened in those negotiations, like how the UAE was able to get access to Schengen. That, that I would love to know, um, but I'm not in the negotiation room, and you know, if anyone does know, that's great, because uh, when you talk to people, they might tell you, okay, this is what you see publicly, but this is not necessarily what went into the negotiations um, uh, privately. One thing you do see in, times, in terms of correlations of other agreements at the same time, so that's publicly available, and that's something I've been trying to, to uh, look at. And so in the case of the UAE, you also had an agreement between the, uh, Europol and, and the UAE. So one of my initial kind of working hypotheses is these are probably security quid pro quos. It's probably, you know, intelligence sharing, security, and then you get access. Like, well, what does it take to get access? In reality, I think it's, it's ending up being a lot messier than what I initially found. So um, the nice thing about being a professor as opposed to a grad student is you have students who are amazing and can help you do things. And so for the past few years, I've had um, basically teams of undergraduates um, helping me just collect raw material um, and, and, and look at treaties. So for the same time that a country has signed a Schengen waiver, what other treaties or agreements do they have with the EU that correlates for two, three years before, two, two three years after. And so we're finding everything, um, which is not yet helpful, um, but that's where I think that with, with this much data, it might be helpful to, it might be interesting to see what we get out of machine learning. Again, nothing really beats being uh, in the room or having access to people who actually know what goes into negotiations, but in the absence of that, we, there are still things that we can find from publicly available information. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, do, I am wary of time. I'm going to be wrapping up in a second. I just want to shout out to my research team, Ahmed Azari, uh, Marathi, who's not here today, but I wanted to, to um, show him off. And then these are the names of the research teams for the past few years. Right now I'm working with um, Ali Taqi, who's a Kuwaiti staff student. He's been really wonderful for thinking about how to visualize um, some of the data we're finding. So the next phase um, is I'm collaborating with uh, Neda Amin, who's actually my cousin, um, and a computer scientist, and she does, how do I say what she does? She's, um, 
she writes computer languages. Uh, so one of the things, so this isn't really interesting to her because everything that we're doing at this stage can be done by a computer science student. You're using um, plug and play kinds of tools. But when we get into questions of these data sets, for example, are not interoperable, that's where it's interesting for her because she cares about coding and coding languages and therefore these challenges of interoperability become moments in which she steps in. And so we're very early on in, in the uh, project. This just started, we started working together a couple of weeks ago. But there are some um, interesting, just I'll give you a sense of what we're looking at. Um, and, and the student, her undergraduate student, Hannah Wasunu, is helping. So the key outcomes of interest, like I said, what are some of the most salient, salient factors so that determine whether a visa waiver is granted or withdrawn? Um, so mapping of quid pro quos that are most frequently tied to, to visa waivers. And for that, we're looking at news articles, we're looking at treaties, we're looking at anything that's publicly available that is talking about relations between these two states um, or between the EU and a particular state that has just gotten a, a Schengen visa waiver. Um, we're also doing a sentiment analysis of citizenship by investment ads. And so that's less about the mobility diplomacy part and more about the citizenship market part, but trying to understand how does citizenship get marketed and what are the, the kinds of salient themes that come up. Um, so, you know, at, at this, this is an example of like named entity extraction. So phase one, you're sort of, uh, this is data, these are news articles that come from the um, Investment Migration Council. So they have, uh, I have a bunch of, uh, all this stuff that my students have been collecting for two years, we're not using yet. We first want to train the data on a smaller uh, data set that is also a bit more focused. So instead of doing, um, you know, Google News or all news of the globe, um, looking at the, the reports and news articles that are listed um, in investment by the Investment Migration Council gives us a, um, you know, a data set that's already more interested in, in things like visa waivers. Um, and you know, some of the preliminary findings, again, unlocking access to Schengen seems to be really key. Um, I still don't know exactly you know, what, what goes on in those negotiations, and I'm hoping that's something I'll find out more about. And then um, one, another really interesting finding is, uh, as I've started to look at these citizenship by investment programs and interviewed um, people who, who are in these, work for these firms or, or own these firms and individuals who are actually engaging in this market, the literature really treats it as this is the uber billionaires of the world who are trying to evade taxation um, or you know, increase, it's a luxury good. Um, and I'm finding that it's not always that, that for many people, this can be a really important coping strategy of dealing with being in a, uh, in a long-term situation where you're not gonna get citizenship or a political crisis um, or, you know, uh, just the constant having, you know, uh, being a business person who has a passport where you constantly have to apply um, for visas. And so, um, yeah, I, I will uh, stop there and just say, um, if you have a good passport story, come talk to me. I'm always interested and, and often find that it's, uh, I learned from audiences um, so much. So. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, 
www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute